Open your Bibles to John chapter 14 this morning. For 22 weeks, we have spent time in the Gospel of John, and we're two-thirds of the way done. In fact, we've got one more I Am statement next week, and then we'll be beginning a a three-part Christmas series starting on December 17th. And then at the beginning of the new year, we'll get back into the Gospel of John and look at the seven miracles that John speaks of. And today we look in depth at the meaning of Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, ten weeks ago, I spoke on this text from John 14, but focusing in on verses 1 through 5. And this week, I want to do some review from verses 1 through 5, but then I want to move to uh, verse 6 and look at that great verse that we've known since we've been uh, little kids for many of us. And I want to explore then the rest of the chapter. In 1974, a man by the name of Barry White, maybe you don't know him by that name, but you may know him as the Maestro of Love or the Walrus of love, wrote a love letter to his uh, love of his life named Glodine James. And Barry White wrote a poem or a a letter that was entitled, My Everything. And in these famous words that became one of the most famous love songs, this is what he says to his one day to be his wife. He says, you're my first, you're the last, you're my everything. And the answer to all my dreams, you are my sun, my moon, my guiding star, my kind of wonderful, that's what you are. I know there's only, only one like you. There's no way they could ever made two. You're all that I'm living for. Your love I'll keep forevermore. You're the first. You're the last. You're my everything. How many know that song from Barry White? Heathens. If you know Barry White, even if you don't know Barry White, you would know his baritone voice. His voice is known uh, on commercials and on television and, of course, his singing. This guy was known for being a romantic. And he articulates to his wife, Glodine, that that she was everything to him. But sadly, on his deathbed, he died a couple years ago at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center and At the time of his death, a couple hours before he passed away, he asked that all his family would leave the room. Now you would say, why? Because his final words that anybody knows is that he said, I want to be alone. Where was Glodine at that time? They were still happily married, supposedly. And we don't know why he would have wanted to be alone. But his first, his last, and his everything, Glodine, was not there for his greatest hour of need. Was he telling a lie? That she was his first, his last, his everything? Here was a man who said wonderful things about this idea of love, but when he needed love the most, he wanted to be alone. Sadly, this is the commentary of many today. We live in a world that's full of pain, full of suffering. Trials and troubles abound. And we want something to hold on to. We want something that will brighten our day. We want something that will bring us hope. The context of Jesus' statement that I am the way, the truth, and the life is not found per se in chapter 14, but it's found in the context of chapter 13. In chapter 13, if you want to just skim over, we see a couple things that are taking place. We know in chapter 13 that we see the disciples are unsettled about Jesus scrubbing their feet. The disciples are troubled by the news that there was a traitor in their midst. They were despondent about the idea of Jesus dying. 
They weren't even sure how they would obey the commandment in chapter 13 because they felt so lost that they needed to love one another. How could they do that when everything seemed to be falling apart? And on top of that, their leader, the powerful man, Peter, was going to lose it. And he was going to deny Jesus three times in a matter of hours. This is the background where Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And it's within that that Jesus speaks truth that staggers our imagination with some of the greatest words that have ever come from His lips. When His followers were filled with fear and uncertainty, it is in John chapter 14 that Jesus declares some teaching to His disciples, but not just to them, but to us as well. He tells them not to worry, that He in fact is their everything. When we put our hope in Him, when we put our trust in Him, we will find that Jesus is true when He says that He is the way, the truth, and the life. But for many here today, including many Christians, we, like Barry White, have written our own love song. But the problem is, is we're not singing it to the right person. We sing, you're my first, you're the last, you're my everything. But we sing it to things like cars and homes. We sing it to things like bank accounts. Even in our most noble approaches, we sing those songs to our spouses. We sing those songs about our children. We sing those things about the dreams and the passions that we have. You're the first, you're the last, you're my everything. But I will tell you today, the only person, the only person, because Barry White got it wrong, while Glodine may have been huge in his life, just as Amanda and my boys are huge in my life, and different things in my life may have precedent over one thing or another, there is only one first, one last, and one everything for every believer here, and that must be Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is saying this morning. He's saying, if you miss it, then I'm going to become one of many things in your life. And that's what Jesus wants to teach us this morning. He wants you to get rid of those possessions and those passions and those pursuits and the people in your way that begin to crowd Jesus from being your first, your last, and your everything. But sadly, even as I say that, our world has made it an option to have Jesus as one of many. Jesus is on that same pedestal. Jesus is on that same uh, sphere of involvement in our lives as other things. Yes, you should have a faith. People will say that. You hear that on the talk shows. You hear that from pulpits. You should have a faith. But don't allow that faith to become so exclusive that it rules out other people. I am here to tell you that your faith must be exclusive and rule out all people and all things. Jesus doesn't want part of your life. Jesus wants all of it. And if He's not it, then I will ask you to question whether He is your Lord and Savior this morning. In John 14, Jesus gives us three reasons why He must be our everything. Look at verse 6 as we look at that in depth this morning. It says, Jesus answered. He says, I believe it's Thomas that He's answering because they want to know where Jesus is going. And Jesus answers, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. I want you to notice that this verse begins with the word, I. 
In fact, 11 times in just these first six verses, Jesus uses a personal pronoun. I, me, or my. Now we need to understand by that very statement that we are not saved by a principle. We are not saved by a program. But we are saved because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not say that He knew the way, that He knew the truth, or that He knew the life. He wasn't even saying that these were the principles that He was going to teach. He declared once and for all that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And you say, why would you hit on that so much? Because in our world today, that statement is being attacked from every angle. And Jesus stands and He says, I am everything, whether you like it or not. You see, our, our um, life's questions and the questions that the disciples had throughout John 13 and starting in verse 14, Jesus doesn't give some recipe to follow. He doesn't say, all right, disciples, I know you're hurting. Don't let your hearts be troubled. He doesn't say, all right, here's a list of things you can do that should settle your heart as if he is a spiritual antacid to a troubled soul. But what he says is that give yourself over to a relationship with me because my plan is wrapped up in who I am as a person. In the original Greek, the words way, truth, and life have a definite, what English teachers would call, a definite article in front of each of them. And so what the verses should read like would be this. I am the way, that is the only way. I am the truth, that is the only truth. I am the life, that is the only life. All three concepts are active and dynamic. What Jesus is saying is, is, I am the way that brings you to God. I am the truth that makes you free. I am the life that produces a relationship with God. One of my favorite preachers is the uh, now deceased uh, pastor from Bellevue Baptist Church named Adrian Rogers. And he had a great preaching voice. Baritone voice. If you ever heard him on the program Love Worth Finding, he said this, Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. And without the life, there is no living. I love how he says that. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no knowing. With the time I have left, I want to look at those three statements. Because there are three things we pull from this if you want to pull out your outlines and follow along. The first thing we need to understand is that Jesus is our everything. He's our everything because He is the way that saves. He is the way that saves. Look at verse 6 for a moment again. Within the context, we see that the idea of the statement, the way, predominates the other two statements that He makes. We could put it like this, as one scholar did. I am the way that reveals the truth about God and gives life to those who believe. Now we must understand that Jesus isn't just merely showing us the way. He is Himself the way, just as if as He was the gate or the door. He was not only the process or the uh, way to get to somewhere, but He was everything around that process of getting there. Now when Jesus says that He's the way, there's a twofold meaning. First of all, He is the way from God to us. He's the way from God to us. And what that means is that all divine blessings come from the Father down through the Son. So He's from God to us, but He's also the way from us to God. 
The only way you and I can get to heaven, the only way you and I can get to God, is through Jesus Christ. It's because Jesus spans the distance between God and man, and He takes care of the issue of sin. Jesus declares that He is the way. Now, culture would say, that's fine. Jesus can be a way, but that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say that I can be aware, I'm one of many ways. But Scripture makes it clear that first of all, write this in your outlines, Jesus is the only way. He's the only way. There is one avenue, one and only avenue to salvation. If you remove Christ, there is no redemptive truth. If you remove Christ, there is no everlasting life. If you remove Christ, there is no way that you and I have hope to see the Father. Now, other religions will offer systems of thought and systems of works that try to bridge the gap between man and God. But Jesus is the only one who has succeeded in bridging that divide. There's no other plan but the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's no other way to get to heaven. Now, you say, okay, that's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? And I would say yes, because it's true and it's seen through Scripture. Turn your Bibles to Acts 4.12 for a moment. Acts 4.12. If you're in the Gospel of John, go to your right. You'll find the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Jesus wasn't the only one that made this statement about Himself. But we see the Apostle Peter boldly states it in Acts 4.12. This is what he says. Salvation is found in... Help me out. No one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Do you see the the correlation there? No one else and no other name. Now Paul talks about it and write this passage down in 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6. It says the Apostle Paul shares this idea of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ when he says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself up as a ransom for all men. Then the Apostle John, who articulated these words in John 14, then says in 1 John 5.12, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Three passages that are extremely exclusive and overwhelmingly clear that Jesus is our only way to to heaven. In fact, His statements of divine authority are so incompatible with the views of religious pluralism that people begin to say, if you believe that, you have to be out of your mind. In fact, G.K. Chesterton, about a hundred years ago, I believe, called this truth of Jesus being the only way, the wild truth. Because not only do we see that Jesus is the only way to God, but Scripture makes it clear that He is, secondly, the open way to God. The open way. Webster defines the word way as something that makes movement in a specific direction possible. A movement in a certain direction possible. You see, without the person and work of Jesus Christ, we would have no way to get to God Jesus has done everything. Listen to me. Jesus has done everything you need that is necessary for man to meet God. Everything. 
The second you add something to it is the second you begin to chip away at the exclusive nature of who Jesus Christ is. But here's where the paradox lies. Yes, Jesus' claim is exclusive. But within that exclusiveness of His statement that He is the way, the truth, and the life, there is a nature of it that is inclusive. It's inclusive in the sense when He says in John 3:37, Whoever comes to Me, I will never drive away. He's open. Matthew 11:28, speaking to people that were struggling with some of His teaching, He says this, Come to Me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Brothers and sisters in Christ, never confuse the openness of Jesus Christ to mean that there is other ways to God. The cults say there are other prophets that can lead to God. Religion says that your involvement in church leads you to God. Liberalism says that there are many paths to God. Materialism says that God is found in your possessions or your things. But the Bible says that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Listen to His words. No one comes to the Father except through Me. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see Jesus declare that on some of our TV talk shows and let the pundits deal with that one. Whether you like it or not, Jesus is our only way. And that's important. Because if we don't understand that and Jesus becomes one of many things, folks, then we begin to start worshiping other things as our God. You see, the moment that we make something else as important as Jesus, or we begin to devalue who Jesus is, then Jesus ceases to be our everything, and the Bible says that that is idolatry. And idolatry is not fit for the people of God. Next we see that not only is Jesus the way, but He's the truth. He's the truth that sanctifies. He's the truth that sanctifies. In John 14, 6 again, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth. The truth. The word truth in Scriptures is seen in two ways. First of all, truth is contrasted with things that are false. So you have true and you have false. And as well as having something that is genuine and something that is fake. That's the two ways that Scripture uses the word truth. So what it in fact is saying is when Jesus says He is the truth, He's saying that He is authentic and He is trustworthy. You see, when we come face to face with Jesus, we come face to face with certainty and reality. Sadly, in our world today, where all the TV shows talk about reality TV, we are living in a wonderland because we're not living in a life that is based on the truth of God. The Bible says that truth is not just something that is uh, intellectual, but it's something that is moral as well. In fact, it's a lifestyle. In John 3.21, Jesus tells Nicodemus that we are to live by the truth when He says, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the life. Now, truth in our world today is a rare commodity. Wouldn't it be great if people would share the truth? Our world is full of lies. Our politics are full of lies. Our family is full of lies. In fact, truth is such a rare commodity that we hear more people saying, well, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. That's the idea of a postmodern culture. In fact, researcher George Barna has discovered, listen to this, that nearly 75% of Americans do not believe in absolute truth. And the sad thing is that was done in 1998. I wonder what it is today. 
So here's the sad part of not believing in absolute truth. What that tells us is that without the clarity and the consistency of an absolute moral truth, we are deduced, or sorry, reduced to this, to what seems right, to what feels good, to what produces the least amount of resistance in what we do, or what, and this is the worst thing, provides me the greatest amount of fulfillment. I can do whatever I want. And it may even hurt every one of you, but my truth is my truth. So whatever brings me joy, whatever brings me peace, whatever I have to do to get that for myself, it doesn't matter what's going on with you because my truth is my own, whether you like it or not. That's the world that we live in. That's the kind of stuff our children are being taught. That whatever you feel is right, is right. But Jesus rises here in our 21st century and He rises up with these words and He says this, I am the truth. He says, I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care what you think it makes you feel good. That's Tim's version of that. What Jesus is saying is get to know Me and you'll discover what is absolutely true and what is absolutely transforming. That's what our culture needs to hear. Now, our culture will fight back against that. They'll say that, how can you say that? You are fanatical. You're fundamental. That is a fundamental truth. A fundamental truth that Jesus Christ is the only way and He's the only truth. You see, truth is very exclusive because it implies one standard. Postmodern thinking says that we all have a standard of truth and it can be different for every one of us. Now, think about that for a moment. You being the world. 400 different ideas of what is right and what is wrong. And I come in as one voice and I say, you're all wrong and I am right. That's what Jesus Christ is saying this morning. It's not something, this truth is not something that changes with the whims that you have in emotion or within your time or within your culture. But where are we to find this truth? It's found in two places. I want you to write this down. It's not in your outline. Truth is found in two places. First of all, truth is embodied in the incarnate Word. The incarnate Word. Because Jesus is God, we know that the truth is found within His nature. In John 1.14, in the prologue of John's Gospel, this is what He says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, and listen to what John says, full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. When we look at Jesus, we see truth embodied. But next we see that it's embodied not just in Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, but it's in, also found in the inspired Word. That book that is in your hand, the Bible, the 66 books of inspired writings. God breathes, 2 Timothy 3 tells us. This is the perfect treasure of divine instruction. I love looking at doctrinal statements. I know you may say that's boring, but I love to do that. And the Southern Baptist Convention put together a doctrinal statement called the Baptist Faith and Message of the year 2000. And this is what they say about the Bible. The Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of, ma of Himself to man. 
It is the perfect treasure of divine instruction. It is God that is I'm sorry. It is God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth. Listen to what it says, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. Do you believe that about your Bible this morning? That the book in your hand is a divine treasure of instruction. Do you believe it to be perfectly trustworthy and true? You know, a lot of people would say right now, yes, I believe that, Tim. Then why is it that this Bible sits on a coffee table? Why is it that this Bible sits in your car? Why is it that this Bible that is perfectly true and trustworthy, that can guide you through your life, why is it that it's never opened from one Sunday to another? Don't amen something on Sunday that you're not willing to do Monday through Saturday. The Word of God is living and active. And sadly, many of us as Christians have problems in our lives because we're not allowing that Word to cut through the garbage of our lives. I challenge you, get in to that perfectly, uh, or that perfect and trustworthy treasure of divine instruction. How is this truth, God's Word and Jesus Himself, how is that to help us? Remember, Jesus is speaking about being the way and the truth. And when He says that, we know that this is in the last hours before Jesus is arrested. This is the last time that He talks with His disciples before His arrest. And Thomas asks the question because Jesus says, well, I'm going to leave. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Thomas freaks out and he says, well, where are you going, Jesus? Show me the way. Do you have a Yahoo or a MapQuest on that one? Give me a map. I want to know where you're going. I don't want to get lost. I have followed you for three years. I don't want to lose you now. And Jesus says, well, you know where I'm going. You won't get lost because I am the way, the truth, and the life. Follow me. And even though I'm going to leave you physically, I will be with you. But how? That's where truth comes in. Truth was going to be their guide. Not just any truth but the truth that is found in the person of Christ and in God's Word. That's why Jesus said, in fact, turn in your Bibles to John 16.13 for a moment. John 16.13. See, Jesus was about to leave, and if Jesus left and nobody came to guide the disciples, then they would have been in trouble. But look at what it says in John 16.13. This is where the Holy Spirit comes in. But when He, speaking of the Holy Spirit, that Spirit of truth, it's amazing, isn't it, that Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth. Now we talk about the third person of the Trinity, who is what? The Spirit of truth. In fact, in the book of James, it says that even God the Father does not shift in the shadows, but where all good and perfect things come from above, including truth. But look at what he says. The Spirit of truth comes. Listen to what it says. He will guide you into all truth. How do we live in a postmodern day? How do we live when everybody says they've got an answer? We live by being guided by the Holy Spirit who is truth. Turn our chapter over to John 17. Because Jesus says not only will you see it in God, this truth, but you'll see it in the Word. John 17, 17. Jesus is praying this great intercessory prayer for His people, including us today. And this is what He says in verse 17. Sanctify them by truth. Your Word is truth. 
Your Word is truth. That Bible you have in your hand, Jesus is saying, set them apart because your Word is the truth that they will live by. But how is that to be done? How does truth set us apart? How does it sanctify us? And what does it do that for? Jesus declares to His disciples some truth that we need to live by. Remember, the disciples are losing it at this point in John 14. They're scared and they're confused. They're depressed. Many here today are in that same place. You're tired. You're weary. You're bewildered. And Jesus declares truth this morning. A famous song by the group Casting Crowns says this, but the voice of truth tells me a different story. The voice of truth says, do not be afraid. The voice of truth says, this is for my glory. Out of all the voices calling out to me, I will choose to listen and believe the voice of truth. Is that your heart's desire this morning? To listen and believe to the voice of truth. Jesus is that voice of truth in troubled times, and He declares a couple things of truth to us. First of all, He declares a peace. He declares a peace. In John 14, 1, it says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in Me. Here's the truth. What Jesus is saying is, all right, here's another claim to my deity that I am God. Because what He says is, all right, you've trusted in God the Father Now trust in me. Though God is invisible, you've entrusted Him. Trust in me likewise when I leave your presence. But later in the text, He also says, how are we to do that? How can we do that when our hearts are troubled? How can we trust in a world where we feel like Jesus is far away or absent? Look at verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give it to you as the world gives it, So do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. How do you allow your hearts not to be troubled? How do you allow your hearts not to be afraid? You do it by taking the peace that Jesus Christ has given to you. The only way we can have peace in midst of troubled times is trusting Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see He declares the truth about a place. Look at verse 3. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. For those who know Jesus, understand this that death, as we talked about last week, is not an eerie journey to an unknown destination. In fact, believers, if you're a child of God here this morning, you are assured that there is a place where all wrongs will be right, where all imbalances and dysfunctions you have will be straightened out. And because of that, we need to think a little differently. You know, we think today we live in the land of the living. And that when we die, we go to the land of the dead. I will tell you today, the opposite is so completely true. This is the land of the dying. When our life here is over, we are transferred to the land of the living. Now, there's a question. What place are you going to go in the land of living? There's two destinations in that land of living. We are told there's a place where there's eternal joy called heaven, or there's a place with eternal torment where you will be as alive as you are today, even more alive, where you experience the weeping and gnashing of teeth because of the torment. That's the truth that Jesus shares this morning. I am the way to heaven. If you go another way and follow your rebellious heart, there's a place that leads to destruction. Now, it's interesting when Jesus says, 
that I've prepared a place for you in this Christmas holiday. I think it's kind of ironic that Jesus is going to prepare a place for us. But when he came here to Bethlehem, there was no place for him. There was no room for him in the inn. In fact, it's funny that even the fact that even though we kick Jesus out of our world, he invites us to his. Even though we say, Jesus, you can't be in our schools. Jesus, you can't be in our public squares. Jesus, you can't be in our society. Jesus says one of his last words to us is, I go to prepare a place for you. You kick me out of your place, that's all right. I will invite you to mine. Third assurance we're given is that we need of trust is that we see a promise. A promise. John 14.3 And if I go to prepare a place for you, look at those next four words. I will come back. I will come back. Being an action movie fan, the words of the governor Arnold Schwarzenegger have been taken away from even a greater superhero, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because Jesus says in Tim's version, which will be out by Zondervan, um, Jesus says, I'll be back. That's what he's saying. I know you can laugh at my corny Swedish or whatever accent, the Austrian accent that he has. I'll be back. Beloved, we must revel in the promise that Jesus is coming back. I want you to think about this for a moment. Do you yearn? Do you yearn for that day? Do you? Don't look at anybody else. Do you pray for the coming of that day to come quickly? Sadly, in the evangelical church, we are so busy with our comfortable United States Western life that to die is not gain, as the Apostle Paul said, but to die means I have to leave all my earthly toys and all my earthly possessions here on earth. I will tell you, we will do ourselves so much better when we yearn for the home that is being prepared by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We would do ourselves better when we would pray that that day would come soon. We would, pr- we would do better if we would begin to worship in that way. That when we sing the song of the Lamb that's recorded in Revelations, that we would begin to sing it in a way knowing that one day we will stand around His throne praising His holy name. Like waves of a hundred, uh, like wave, a hundred waves or whatever the statement is, of oceans roaring. That that would thunder because that's what it's going to do in heaven. Do you yearn for that day? Do you? Or are you so busy and so enamored with the things of this world that that truth, that nugget of truth that Jesus says, I'm coming back. Does that bring a great amount of joy in your heart? Don't ever forget this, that we are not home yet. This is not our home. Peter says we are but aliens and strangers visiting this place, but we are heading to a home. You know, if we would grab a hold of this truth, 
this truth of Jesus being our peace, by Jesus going and preparing a place and Jesus giving us a promise, we would do ourselves better because then, when we understand that truth, it will change who we are. That's why Peter said, you are a chosen priesthood, a holy nation of people belonging to God, that we would declare the praises. What's the praises? The truth. That Jesus is the peace. That Jesus is preparing a place. And that Jesus gives a promise. I'm coming home. For many here, you have found the way to God. And you say, yes, I need to accept Him as my Savior. But the question is this morning for all Christians is, are you living in light of His truth? It's time for God's people to be set apart by the truth of God. What a difference we would make if that Word of God would penetrate our hearts and minds. Our worship would be different. Our witness would be empowered by that truth of the Spirit. And our world would be a different place, even in this postmodern society. Why? Because Jesus shared this idea that we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. There's one final thing we see, and I need to close this out, and that is that Jesus is our everything because He's the life that satisfies. He's the life that satisfies. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All throughout the Gospel of John, this word life describes the idea of a um, spiritual vitality. It's the word zoe in the Greek, which means life. And what that means is that throughout the Gospels, Jesus is saying that He's the giver of life. Well, what does that mean? Not just biological. Yes, Jesus is the Creator God, but He also is the giver of spiritual life. But not just mediocre life, but in John 10, 10, He says that I have come that you may have life, but not just any ordinary life, but life to the fullest. But how are we to experience this abundant life? This satisfying life. Jesus says when we walk in His ways, when we follow His truth. You see, for us to experience as Christians life, we must begin to live out point one and point two. If you're not living out that Jesus is the way and that Jesus is the truth, then tough luck, you'll never experience life. And some of you aren't experiencing that this morning because you're not living out point one and point two. You're like Mick Jagger. I can't get no satisfaction. I will tell you, you start living out the life of Jesus, the way and His truth, and you'll be different than Mick Jagger because you will experience satisfaction. How do we live, that, live out that satisfaction? It's given because of a result of a couple of things. First of all, a life of service. Write that in your outlines. A life of service. Look at verse 12 through 14. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son of Man may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. When we follow Christ, we will become compelled to serve Him. I want everybody to look up here for a moment. If you say you follow Christ, and you look at your life, and your pocketbook says nothing about Jesus, and your time says nothing about Jesus, then I will tell you, you need to go back and say, am I truly following Christ? If you're not serving Christ, if you're not giving back to Christ, if you're not sharing the good news about Christ, Jesus is saying, hey, the life of service is the life of a Christian. We were saved so that we may serve. For by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. 
not by works that anyone could boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ to do what? To hang around on Sundays? No, to do good works, which the Father in heaven has prepared in advance for us to do. You can't do two, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 without Ephesians 2.10. And if you do, you're missing the whole life of a believer. It's a life of service. We see a couple things that Jesus promises to do in this life. He will honor us. How does He honor us? In verse 12 it says that we will be given opportunities to do greater things than Him. Do you know because of the person and work of the Holy Spirit, you can do greater things than what Jesus did here on earth? I don't understand that. I don't understand the theology behind it because the things I read in God's Word, they're pretty awesome. But from Jesus' words, He says, you will do greater things than I because the living God is living within each of us. Next, He will hear us. Look at what it says in verse 13. Whatever we ask according to His will, He tells us one final thing. Not only does He hear us, but He'll help us. Twice in verse 13 and 14, when He says we ask, He says, I will do it. What are you praying for? Are you praying according to the will of God? He says He'll do it. He'll be done in His time, in His way, but He'll do it. But not only do we see a life of service, but the second thing we see is that for this reality to become true, we must have a surrendered life. A surrendered life. Look at verses 21 through 24. In fact, verse 21, there's three things that are said. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, He is the one who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. In verse 24, he who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Here's another test for us as believers. We say we love God, we sing the praises of God, and we say we love you. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. We sing those songs as kids in youth group. We sing them today. We love you, Jesus. Jesus says you can sing that if you obey my teaching. That's the only way we are going to prove the love that we have for Jesus Christ. We cannot sit here on Sunday and say, I love you, Lord, and go and live a life like a pagan on Monday through Saturday. It just can't happen. Jesus says you're wasting your time. Now, that doesn't mean we don't fall to sin. But what Jesus is looking for is people that prove their love by saying, Oh my goodness, Father in heaven, I have wronged you. And you and you alone have I sinned against. And now I ask for forgiveness. That is the kind of response we must have that proves our love for Jesus Christ. Next we see, he says, one thing about verse 23, if anyone loves me, listen to what he says, he will obey my teaching. What happens? And there's a promise within that verse. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. When you follow the teaching of God, the promise of obedience is that you will find intimacy. You want to hang out with God the Father and God the Son? Obey him. Finally, we see a spirit-filled life. A spirit-filled life. The reason the Christian life brings forth abundance is because of the Holy Spirit. In verses 15 through 31, Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit. In verse 16, He speaks of the Holy Spirit being a comforter. In the Greek, it's the word paraclete. One who comes alongside. One who offers protection and counsel. This carries the idea of an advocate. He's another counselor, it says. That word is alos, which means that He is of the same substance and quality. Yet there's an aspect of the Holy Spirit's job that I want to close out with. And that is this. How do we do greater things? 
now than what Jesus did? Because the Bible says that the Holy Spirit was coming into the world. In the three years that Jesus walked with His disciples, He could abide with His disciples. But now, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus doesn't abide with us, meaning hang out with us physically, but He abides in us. Don't ever forget that. We say, well, it would have been easy to believe Jesus back.